Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam. Asher bakar bin vi'im tovim ve'ratza ve'divrehim ha'ne'emarim be'emet. Baruch atah Adonai, haboker b'torah, uv'moshe avdo, uv'yisrael amo, uv'in v'ye ha'emet v'zedek. In the merit of Mashiach Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, shalom aleichem to all who are tuning in for the Haftarah, Get You Some, with Shomerman and Hasis Baz. And we want to thank you for joining us today. We are in Parsha Vaera, which is not to be confused with Parsha Vaera. And so, um, Hasis, take us away. Uh, great to be on. Uh, we're going to start, as always, with our prophet background. And so we're coming from the, the book of Yechezkel, is more commonly known as Ezekiel. All right. And pretty, pretty mysterious guy, about as far as his family background is, is concerned, his personal life. But we do know a few things about him, that he was the son of Buzi, from the priestly family of Zadok. So he was both a priest and a prophet. Hmm. He he was married, and his wife actually died suddenly. There's not a lot of uh, detail as far as that goes. Um, but he was carried away by the Babylonians from the Holy Land. He lived in Tel Aviv. He had this prophetic call five years after he arrived in Babylon. Hmm. And his his... Prophecies spanned a period of 20 years, over 20 years, and he actually died in Babylon. Wow. He is actually pretty unique, distinct among the prophets in that he's the only one who actually prophesied outside the land of Israel. (laughs) Are you you serious? Yeah. He was the only prophet whose spirit, the spirit of activity he had in prophecy was the only one who was outside the land of Israel. And so a lot of the pages say that he, he got his prophecy inside while he was in Israel, but he had his, his prophetic activity in the land of Babylon. Ah, because, you know, I was going to say that, you know, the Chazal bring down the commentary about the, um, the Ruach HaKodesh being not necessarily ineffective, but not as potent of a feeling if you're outside Eretz Israel. So obviously there is uh, a picture of that with our current tour portion we're in, but it's interesting you say that with Yehezekiel, who is definitely one of the heavy hitters, and he is in Babylon. Yes. Anyway, that's interesting. He's also known as the, he was the only one addressed by the title Son of Man, Ben-Adam. Just like Mashiach. Exactly. (laughs) And... He used a lot of um, a lot of uh, symbol symbolic actions. Like you'll see him, he's like in the um, pairing of the the sticks and whatnot. Yes. Um, but he also he spoke pretty much in not his language wasn't as poetic as all the prophets. He spoke pretty plainly to the people. For sure. And the reason is he didn't really need to use all these imaginative um, ideas to encourage the people. To persuade them to to truth and to Torah, because his his messages were addressed to a people. If you think about it, they're already suffering humiliated humiliation and all this disaster of captivity, mm-hmm. and so he didn't 
didn't have to stir up their imagination too much. His whole function was actually just to give them a positive direction. Wow, beautiful. So it's it's there's something very interesting about him in that he like later on his his book was argued if it was going to be canonized or not. Wow. This huge, huge debate. And if it had not been for uh, a rabbi in the uh, a sage within the, the first century, known as Hanina bin Hezekiah, Ezekiel would not have been like, written, it would not have been canonized or written down, because his words actually seemed to contradict the teachings of the Torah. Say what? Yes. Oh, we can so, talk about that. I hope. <laughs> yeah, well, we can we can briefly mention it. Talk about it now, but essentially, you know, it's it's very much like the writings of Shaul. Oh, come on! So, of course, we don't need Paul Shaul. Right. If you want to address him by actual name, right. we don't need him for true theology because we have Torah and we have the words of Messiah. But you know, if anyone wants to argue, your faith is ridiculous because of. Shoal, well, okay, what about Yezahel? His writings were just as hard to understand, and had it not been for one guy actually making commentary on him, it would have been dismissed as a book altogether. That is so crazy to hear, because um, I was telling the podcasters earlier this week that Yezahel, even though I'm not supposed to have favorites, is one of my favorites. <laughs> It's probably my most favorite prophet, actually. So uh, it's so crazy that that is the discrepancy with him, because were it not for me actually reading these writings when I was uh, a part of another faith system, you know, I don't know kind of where my um, ins inspiration would have came from. Obviously, it all comes from Hashem. But when I read Yehezekiel for the first time, all I saw was basically what I know now is Naseve Nishma. And, you know, I didn't really see Yehezekiel complaining with with everything that Hashem, you know, requested of him and with all the examples he was supposed to give. I thought it was absolutely immaculate that he was just like straightforward, like, OK, you want me to lay on my side? Cool. You want me to build stuff in my yard even though I can't speak? OK, cool. You know, <laughs> and then here to find out his writings probably wouldn't have been canonized. I'm like, oh my word, that is insane. But, you know, Baruch Hashem that we have the Torah, because that's all we need. Well, I mean, obviously the Ruach HaKodesh and everything, but like, I'm not trying to say, you know, semantically, it sounds kind of weird if I say that's all we need. But, you know, I'm saying our foundation comes from the word of Hashem, which is initially in the Torah and it expands out from there. So, oh, man. but anyway, keep going. I just, uh, that that was kind of like a swerve for me real quick. Yeah, well, well th thank goodness is that words actually were written down. And thank goodness for Kanina Ben Hezekiah. Yes, so now I got to talk to him too when I talk to you as a kid. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Brooke, maybe, maybe we could add uh, even more of a of a appreciation for Hezekiah for you. Um, in that, he, he had a real push towards a few, a few, um, few ideas and like doctrines um and whatnot we have this idea he he had a heavy preaching for divine justice you know he there's this mention of god laying a stumbling block before him 
like he, he was he was there to warn so called, warn the renegade people before God laid a stumbling block. And so this idea, you know, kind of puts God in like, oh no, God's God's not just. How can He lay a stumbling block and be just? And so there's a lot of there's a lot of negative commentary, non-Jewish commentary against this, against the Shem from from this. But what's really meant is that the objection is is one of about the stumbling block is about a person who turns apostate inwardly, but hypocritically is still professing to be pious. And so, such hypocrites like are um, will be exposed by God, who places a stumbling block in the person's way, which causes him to commit his secret sins in public. And so, that's the whole idea of the stumbling block and divine uh, justice. Hey, and there's that. We're gonna touch on a couple of these because it's all like things that I feel like a lot of people who may read scripture outside of of a Hebrew context and outside of using the Hebrew language get a little little confused. And they swerve off the completely wrong path. So another one that he, he mentions a lot is this idea of divine jealousy, which actually has nothing in common. You know, it mentions, I, I'm the Lord, you got him a jealous God, many other places. But it actually has nothing in common with jealousy, and it's derived from the Hebrew word kana, which is to acquire as one's own property. And it denotes, in the first instance, the vindication of one's right. And so where you would translate maybe something in verse 20 or chapter 23 25 and i have set my jealousy against thee it should be understood more as and i will set my violator rights against you wow. and so this is god the idea of kenaz god being um is very zealous for his violated rights for the lives that are being violated against him and expresses this certain retribution for these offenses which undermine the existence of human society it's always in reference to two things which is like idolatry and all these immoral acts. So, in other words, you know, for if you're a, uh, a household, you know, you have your parents, you have your children. If something happened to those children, you know, it's the parents, you know, responding to the violation that happened towards their children or something that happened towards their household. Yes, exactly. So that's what jealousy actually is as opposed to saying like oh he's just upset because someone's better than him and taking his place like okay that's petty that's not jealousy yes definitely it's it amazing because you, you kind of like segued into like a very hint of this next thing that he's really adamant about which is wow. individual responsibility you know, parents and children and you know we have this idea that is brought down from the torah it talks about you know hashem visits the iniquity upon generations Individual but reality. wow yeah but as a hell he comes and he's he's talking about how man will be punished for their own sins mm-hmm. and so there's like okay well which is it and luckily we have Chazal, we have these sages who who clear clear this and show there's no real contradiction between the words of either wow. and so this whole idea of visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children is really to be understood in the sense that only if the children are like their fathers, haters of God, they will also serve the sins of their forebearers. That is correct. So that's, that's the only condition. And so it's kind of touched on the, the idea of free will and just the idea of, you know, hey, if an individual is not punished for his own sins, after he sincerely repented them, then how much less should one be punished if based on the sins of others? Wow. There's two things that he was, other really, the two last things that he was very adamant about. Um, the definition of holiness, 
and mentions this idea when he's talking about the rebuilding of the the temple, the third temple, mm-hmm. and this whole idea of where it says, "Ye shall be holy." The rabbis and Sra comment that ye shall be restrained, roshim. And so the whole idea of holiness denotes self-discipline and freeing oneself from base instincts so as to gain a footing on a higher level of spiritual life. And what's that? I said a higher level, you know, like just thinking about that definition of holiness that you just mentioned, like that's beautiful. That's what's definitely missed out on if we if we ever just take holiness for granted or the concepts of Torah that Hashem so freely has uh, prescribed for us through the mitzvot, like we're being pulled up into a whole new plane of, of reality, you know? And if we follow that, you know, then we're free of our own addictions and our own uh, bondage to all these like negative attributes and negative emotions that restrict us from really true freedom. Say la. Wow. I mean, you can look at the, the Torah as bondage, or you can look at your own Yetzirah as bondage. Ooh. So it really just depends on if you have eyes to see or not. Quick question. Um, yes. When you think about Yehezekiel not possibly being canonized, where would we get our elucidation of the third temple? That's a good question. Um, it mentions there's, there's other problems we've actually had the vision of of these ideas, but I don't mean I have to tab on that question okay. and come back. Well, I mean, it's not so much I think that we need to answer it, but it just kind of makes me think because there's such a huge portion of the latter part of his writings that he really goes into a lot of detail. So uh, yeah. usually when the Third Temple's uh, talked about, it's like, yeah, read Yehezekiel, and it's just like, but he's not the only one who talked about it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. All right, Brookshire. Definitely most details about the Makava and the Third Temple and all that. And we have our, we got this last point that he, he addressed was the idea of Israel's restoration. Whereas you had Yeshiyahu, you had, you had Isaiah, who was talking about universal peace. And, and many things. One aspect where he talks about um, the lion will lay down with the lamb, the wolf shall do with the lamb, and etc. And he's talking about this whole universal peace for mankind, about this this change in the natural instincts of creatures. Whereas Ezekiel, he predicted like the banishment of the beast of prey, and he really seems only concerned with the future peace of Israel, right. and only hints at universal peace. And this really. He speaks chiefly, like I said, about the peace and security of Israel. But this whole concept is really understandable. It's not that he's just trying to um, ignore the nations and ignore all that. He's really at a completely different time period than Yeshiyahu. Wow. And like we mentioned earlier, like his mention was to give strength, like his name has Hazak in it, Hazak, to be strong. And that at such a time when they are all beaten down, his mission was primary to instill into the people this new spirit of confidence and faith in their future, and also to lessen their anguish by assuring them that their enemies would receive their deserved punishment. So, so now we're looking not- at Yeshua's words in Yochanan chapter 14 and also in 17, where he's encouraging us, even though he's about to be handed over and he's going to die. So it's just kind of like this encouragement that, you know, 
there's going to be some problems. There's going to be some tribulations. But take heart. I've overcome the world. And my shalom is what I give to you. And here you have Yehezkel is strengthening people in the midst of dismay and just being downtrodden. So that was beautiful that you brought that out. Like, oh. Love that parallel. Well, you know, since Yehezkel uh, is one of your favorite prophets, maybe we're going to elucidate a little bit more about him. Oh, thank you so You're, uh, Man, thank you, Shem, for you. You're all right. Man. <laughs> <laughs> then we'll jump to our half Torah. Okay. I swear. Bizarre Hashem. Wow. <laughs> he's, we mentioned that he's, uh, that he was um, in, in line with like Jeremiah and all that. He was actually the son of Jeremiah. When it says Ben Bozi, this is because people scorned him. And the whole idea of the scorn it's a, is a similar. It's from the root of uh, Bozi. It's the root of Bozi. So he was actually the son of Jeremiah, the one who witnessed, who wrote the book of Echa, you know, witnessed the, the temple burning down. Are you serious? Yeah, so he is Jeremiah's son. Oh, wow. <laughs> okay, another one. Also, we also have a few more. We have uh, Zephaniah, son of Koshi, Jeremiah, son of Hilkiah, Uriah, son of Shemaiah, and Ezekiel, son of Buzi. They all prophesied close to the time of the destruction of the temple. And Echazel, uh, he was actually mocked by the people. Is they said, "Is this not the descendant of Rahab the prostitute?" Oh. Therefore, the Torah, you know, script and scripture comes and backs him up and calls him a priest. This whole idea of uh, Ben Adam, he's dressed as Ben Adam, and yes, we like you mentioned before. This is a messianic like title. You know, it's all about the Mashiach, and there's definitely allusions to that. But it's also expression of affection. It's expression, Adam, the whole idea of Adam, man, is expression of affection, brotherhood, and friendship. So it says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu to Echazkel, he says, son of Adam, which means like son of good people, son of righteous people, of people who perform acts of kindness, who allow themselves to be shamed all of their days for the sake of God's honor and for the sake of Israel's honor. And then we have this whole idea that's brought down in Sanhedrin 39a, we talks about Hashem who afflicted um, Ezekiel in order to remove the sins of Israel. So, okay. so you have Yehezkel who was slandered based on his mother or his one of his his ancestor mothers, right? Right. Come on. That who was called by a term of endearment by Hashem Baruch Hu, Amen. and literally was known as the scorned one who was afflicted in order to remove our sins. Wow. <laughs> so you look at the, the pattern and the parallels that he has with Mashiach Yeshua, and, you know, I could definitely see why, you know, like he was your pa- favorite prophet. Man, come on. That, oh my word, that was epic. <sighs> a lot, a lot of interesting stories about this guy. I want to touch on a couple things, kind of give us a, a perspective of how scriptures all intertwined, and they're not just all these separate books. But a lot of the characters flow into different books and we don't even realize. Oh, link it up. Bring it on. So, I have this idea that, you know, it mentions he was in Babylon. But there's actually three other people who are in Babylon who refused to bow down to an image. Yep, that's Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah. Exactly. Do you know they actually went to Yechazel in order to ask his advice for that incident? 
I think I vaguely remember because there's a whole epic drop in the Talmud on that story and how it relates to uh, Zachariah and how he was uh, standing, uh, the whole episode of, of Yehoshua the high priest standing before the king and he was in all these uh, like cinched clothes basically. So like, and there's this whole thing about scorched grain and stuff. So that's kind of, that's the only thing I kind of remember about it. It was, well, this, it was connected. Is, this is from uh Shir Shir Rabbah seven, eight. And it mentions this conversation, this dialogue that he has with them. And so it says that Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah were, who were chosen to represent Israel went to uh, Ezekiel and asked him, shall we bow down or not? And he replied, I have a tradition from my teacher, Isaiah. Mm. So Isaiah was a teacher. Mm. Hide yourself for a little moment until the wrath has passed. Isaiah 26, 20. They responded, do you want people to say all the nations bowed down before this image? For they will notice our absence and will think that the representatives of Israel also bowed. Mm. If so, what do you suggest as Ezekiel? We want to be there to desecrate the image by not bowing down to it. Then the people will say every nation except Israel bowed down to the image. If that is your opinion, said Ezekiel, wait a while while I consult HaKadosh Baruch Hu. When he returned, they asked him, what did HaKadosh Baruch Hu say? He told them, he will not save you. After that, they came to Ezekiel and said, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, after they came from Ezekiel, they, came, they said to Nebuchadnezzar, but if he does not rescue us, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not worship your God. As soon as they had left Ezekiel, the Holy One, blessed be he, appeared to him and said, Surely I will save them, but tell them nothing, so they will go with simple faith. As it is written, he who goes with simple faith will go securely. I ain't never heard that account. So, Toda Rabbah, <laughs> wow. Can we, and then can we just connect that to Abraham's brother? Oh, yeah. The one who, if you want to just, just drop it down real quick. Yes, uh, specifically the, the father of Sarah. Uh, his name is Haran, and he was thrown into the furnace by Melik Nimrod, and uh, he was only thrown into the furnace that way and died because he saw Abraham survive the furnace. And up until that point that Abraham was thrown into the furnace, he was like, I don't know about this Hashem guy, but you know, whatever, Abraham. Abraham goes through the furnace, comes out, and it's like, oh, cool. So then... When it's his turn to get tossed into the furnace, he's like, yeah, so I believe in Abraham's God, and I'm going to go into the furnace now, and I'll be right back. And that was his <laughs> famous last words. Yes. So, wow. Beautiful uh, Midrash recap. Chill out. That's, that's the Shomer Man Midrash on the furnace. <laughs> <laughs> well, so we this whole idea of, of people perishing – there's also this aspect that we'll be brought back to life. And uh, Yechazel, he was actually one of the three people who was given the keys from Hashem to resurrect the dead. The other two were Yahu and El Yeshua. And you may remember this, this is the story of the, the, the dry bones where he resurrected them. And there's this question of who who were these dry bones that were resurrected. Oh, it comes I from it. I love it. And they say it was the sons of Ephraim who calculated the time of redemption and erred. And they led, they, you know, they fled Egypt prematurely and they were slain by the men of Gath. And so kind of a take back to 
you know, the, the excess story that we're currently leading in our Parsha. And it was interesting because this, this is also coming around the same time that uh, Mishael, Hananiah, and Azariah refused to bow down. So because at the time he wished to cast them into the fiery furnace, talking about Nebuchadnezzar and these, these three men, the Holy One, blessed be he, said to Ezekiel, go resurrect the dead in the Valley of Dura. As soon as he had resurrected them, the bones came and slapped Nebuchadnezzar in his face. Oh. And he says, why? What is the nature of this? He asked. The reply came, their friend is resurrecting the dead in the Valley of Dura. So these bones that he resurrected came and slapped Nebuchadnezzar in his face. <laughs> wow. That is, that is crazy. So just a little humorous, humorous story brought down from uh, Talmud. And, but the question comes up is, how did he actually get the merit for the dead to be resurrected through him? He received merit for that? This is how. It's a why, why did Ezekiel merit that the dead be resurrected through him? This is a question uh, that's brought down. And the answer is because he felt a complete sense of identity with Israel. Mm. So think about this. Parallel it to, even though these three men were given the keys of resurrection, Yeshua says in Yochanan 11, 25-26, I am the resurrection and the life. Wow. And you think about that in regards to this statement, you know, where he, he only had the merit to resurrect the dead because he had a, a sense of identity with Israel. So therefore, if you're, if you're taking the, the Jewish identity away from Yeshua, you're essentially saying that he has no power to resurrect me. What? So you're, you've lost faith in his being the resurrection alive. Oh, wow. You're taking away his Jewish identity. If you're stripping that from him, like the Romans stripped his garments from him, then you're literally, you have no belief in the resurrection of the dead, and you know better than the, the Sadducees, who were villains against the people in that day. Well, while you're at it, the tag on that is the garments of Mashiach atone for murder. And so if you think about the what are the garments of Messiah, it is none other than the Peshat levels of the Torah. Because the Torah has garments, which are the stories and the accounts that we read. So the outer garments and those have the ability to bring atonement. Wow. Yeah, that's all an elucidation off of um, Rabbi Griffin citing the the Humash Talmud accounts uh, for the garments that were stripped from Yosef because those were the garments of the Kohen Gadol. And these were the garments that Hashem made for Adam and Hava. And uh, we were just connecting it to Messiah Yeshua because there had to be a reason that they were gambling or casting lots for his garments and dividing them up because that represented the garments that were taken from Yosef. So he's going through the same kind of trial and execution that Yosef went through. Well, I have to say, first of all, it's a beautiful elucidation. I think it's just incredible that you're mentioning, you know, the, the suffering of Mashiach and Yosef and Yosef because the gematria of uh, Yisrael's name is the same gematria as Yosef. I'm going to throw some things. I'll be right back. <laughs> so he has the same exact gematria as his name. And so we know if there's a similar gematria, there's a similar idea between these these names. And it's interesting because in here we have, we come from the Torah portion where there's plagues against Egypt. 
And we come to this half Torah where there's all these, you know, uh, negative punishments that, that's going to be afflicted to the Egyptians as well. Mm-hmm. But did you know all this was actually hinted? It was actually hinted in the Yosef story when he's in prison. No way. Come on, man. So, this is brought down in, in Sota 9a. It's this idea of Yosef and his, in the, when the, the wine butler tells Yosef his dream, he mentions the, the wine cup he mentions Pharaoh's cup three times. And so these three cups, they represent the three cups of punishment that Egypt would drink. One in the day of Moshe, the second in the day of Pharaoh Necho, which we're going to mention, and the other one in the t- days to come from Mashiach. That was beautiful. With that, we segue into our half Torah. <laughs> that was a violent segue. <laughs> Oh my <laughs> so of course we're coming from uh, Yechezkel um, 28, the end of 28 and 29. The first part talks about Hashem's punishing, will punish the Jewish nation's enemies. Um, beginning of 29, Egypt will be conquered by Babel. Then we get into why Egypt deserved this. And Egypt will be desolate for 40 years. We're talking about the number. Hashem. And that she would never again, talking about Egypt, rise to power. And then the ending is why Nebuchadnezzar was actually allowed to conquer Egypt in the first place. Mm. All right. Those are our headings. <laughs> exactly. So, links, links to the parts. The most obvious one is just all these punishments to, to Egypt. Um, there's another mention of the staff. And so in our, our Parsha of Vaera, Aaron throws his staff down and it comes into a serpent. Serpent. And this is actually a representative of the relationship of Egypt and Israel, and it symbolizes Pharaoh. And then in this half tour, Pharaoh is known as the, it's usually translated as great sea monster. It could also be tra- translated as like crocodile more frequently and also as dragon. Can I tag to that? Yes, go for it. From G. Shekel, he says, when Moshe came in the attribute of Hashem, Paro said he never heard of it, Shemot 5.2. Thus, Paro's hardening of heart and judgments came by this name to show him that there's a higher unique God beyond the one he perceived as Elohim or the plural forces of nature, which his wizards could control by magic. The power of the wicked snake. That's what that is. The power of the wicked snake is what his sorcerers were using. As it is stated, I am against you, Paro, king of Egypt. Great dragon that lies in the midst of the rivers, Yehezekiel 29.3. And that's why his judgment started with a snake. Of- Beautiful. So now we, we mentioned this idea of judgment you brought down. And it's just like, what's the purpose? Why is he afflicting all his punishment? Whether it's in our Torah portion, this half Torah, there's a few ideas mentioned. As far as the, the Exodus, it says, why did he have to punish the Egyptians if it was all necessary to bring Israel out? Well, the first one is, even though the exile was promised to Abraham, it never mentioned which nation. And so Egypt chose to enslave the Israelites. And the second idea of why they had to suffer so much was because they, they overdid the brutality toward the Israelites at that time. This is why they were punished so harshly. But what was the purpose of the punishment is actually explicitly stated both in the Torah 
and within this half Torah, and it's pretty much the same, very, very, very similar, if not the exact same phrasing. And yes, it's the exact same phrasing. And it says this, By this you will know that I am Hashem. So the whole purpose to these punishments is to know Hashem. Because mm, he didn't know Hashem. Oh my word. Yes. He only knew him himself and his, his ego. Right. And this is very similar to the story of David and Goliath, where it says, So the world may know that you are God. And he slings a stone. Man. Wow. So with that, the beginning, the beginning verse of the half Torah, 28, it's all alluding to um, this idea of essentially you don't want to go against Israel because if you go against them, whether it was decreed or not, you're going to be punished for it. Anyone who inflicts damage until unto Hashem's children, there will be consequences. And then it talks about Yaakov, and it's like, why is Yaakov the one who's mentioned? and not any other four forefathers, it's because Yaakov actually had was promised the widest borders of land. Mm. As it says, you will spread out to the west, east, north, and south. And then there's the concept of um, when we see our enemies punished, there's there's the idea that faith will be strengthened within Israel. Because along with that comes the, the understanding of, hey, you know, it's not just the righteous who suffer. Everyone gets their justice. Well, now I, now I realize the the account from the Midrash Rabbah in last week's parsha called Yisrael the burning bush of thorns. That a person who sticks their hand in there, in in the uh, in the beginning, they won't feel anything and there will be no effect. But once they try to take their hand out, or when they take their hand out, it will be burned and it will be pierced. Yes. So that was uh, crazy. Yes. And that's what happened, too. Yeah, it sure did. <laughs> wow. So we have this address that says, Son of man, turn your thoughts to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and prophesy concerning him in all Egypt. So we have this phrase, bin Adam, which, of course, is, it's, uh, it's reference. there's a reference, allusion to the Mashiach. And so we mentioned that one of the punishments, the third and final punishment of Mitzrayim, comes at the hands of the Mashiach, according to Sotha 9a. Oh. And so even though he is speaking to the pharaoh uh, Hafra at the time, who was the pharaoh of, of Egypt during the destruction of the first day of Mikdash, there's allusion to, it's like like allusion to Mashiach actually coming in the final redemption. And so this prophecy is actually giving the people strength to the final redeemer to come. And we go into 29.3, where it says, So says Hashem Elohim, Behold, I will fight against you, pharaoh king of Egypt, the great crocodile. Also translates dragon, as we mentioned, um, or serpent, crouching in his Nile River, who claims my river is mine, and I made myself exalted with the exception with my exceptional skills and wisdom. Hmm. And so he's referred to as this crocodile, and this is not this is not an uncommon thing. Many of the nations are given objects to represent them that that are very very symbolic for their power or what they're known for, like the the king of Tyre. Is depicted and later in or earlier in Israel uh, as a ship capsizing because their their income was based on their their marine time trade and so Pharaoh is referenced as we'll just go with the, the more commonly used term as a crocodile and so I was like why is he compared to crocodile is mostly because Egypt prospered prosperity wasn't based on the rain they're based on the Nile it was and so this <laughs> this was a part of his arrogance. He's like, I don't need the rain. I don't need anything. I have my Nile. 
you know, all that stuff. But it's also very heavily weighted with sarcasm. We use this term crocodile because the, the crocodile was worshipped as a god. It was considered a sacred animal in Egypt, you know, and so it's, you know, when he's talking about crocodile, he's like, you know, crocodile. You know, it's very sarcastic. And, you know, there's actually a Talim that's, that's written about this. It, it says, um, Hashem made us and we are his, but more literally, it, it translates to, we did not make ourselves. Which one is that? This is Tehillim 100, verse 3. Crocodile talking. Yes. And so, you know, we have something today in, in our world. We're not really too far-fetched off from Pharaoh's mentality. Who, you know, we have this, this quote-unquote secular ac- academic, quote-unquote academic, secular world that maintains the same beliefs as ancient Pharaoh. You know, they say they attribute the world's existence to natural or accidental causes rather than divine creation. Of course, the real underlying issue, and I think we've, we've actually mentioned this before, is that it's really just a self-serving benefit because this belief actually allows them to, to not have the quote-unquote yoke of the Torah. And we mentioned earlier, you can either have the yoke of Torah or you can have the yoke of your, your own selfish passions and be enslaved to that. And so you got to choose your, choose your master wisely. But Hashem actually responds to Pharaoh, and he says, he says um, that, Behold, I'm above you. You're not quite the authority you claim to be. I'll show you who is in charge. So then he gets into this beautiful imagery, very, like, like beautiful, beautiful, powerful imagery of putting hooks into the jaws and pulling out the crocodile from the river. And so... It literally connotates this idea of like um, uh, hachim is hooks, and it literally connotates the idea of a pair of hooks, one for each jaw. And what's interesting is we mentioned this allusion to the crocodile, and we're staying with that. In the half words, staying with that allegory. And when a crocodile and fish are taken out of out of the water, and they're exposed to this this arid desert heat, they expire. And that's really not the end of their punishment. It doesn't stop there. It says even after death, the punishment continues. Their bodies will be buried. Well, bodies will not be buried, Slicha, but instead they will decay in the field and be devoured by the beast of the bird, by the beast and bird alike. So we have these, these three instances when this prophecy came true. The first was Nebuchadnezzar when he defeated Egypt during Yochanan's reign. The second and the fourth year of Yehochaim, um, the ruler of Israel, Nebuchadnezzar killed Pharaoh Necho, which we talked about. That was mentioned in the, the Talmud, one of the cups. Right. He killed him at the Battle of Karmakesh. And the third, which was several years later, where he invaded Egypt and destroyed it completely. And they actually gave a lot of a lot of flack to um, uh, Yechazel, um because he, you know, it took a while for that prophecy to come fulfilled, and so he thought he was a false prophet, which is why it later said, you know, open your mouth, and it's like he Hashem gives him the ability to defend himself because he allows the prophecy to come true. Yeah, I think that's uh, a, a very, just for a practical note for all of us, is that when Hashem says something, and no matter how long it takes, it will come to pass. You know, like as far as something that he is, he said, like, I'm going to return you to the land. I am going to send my anointed, you know, like those kinds of prophecies, like knowing that we're 
anticipating the return of Messiah Yeshua, that is something that we cannot afford to lose hope in and to to give up about, you know, and we're supposed to believe in Mashiach, though he tarries kind of thing. And so uh, just a practical note for us to just really take Hashem's word to heart. It will come to pass. Amen. And that whole idea that you talked about is it's such a, it's a key thing we need to remember for the sake of really grounding our Muna. And it's actually hinted within this partial, uh, like we just mentioned one instance here uh, where it's hinted within this, this, this uh, half Torah. And the con- this concept is elsewhere in the, the half Torah, which maybe we could kind of pull out that idea as we get to it. All right. But he's not only compared to a crocodile, they're also compared to a this reed, like a staff of reed. And this, this whole concept is really based on the idea of when someone leans himself against a reed, it breaks. Huh. It can't support its weight. And Israel at this time was very, very guilty of putting their trust in Egypt instead of putting their trust in Hashem. And we'll get to more of that in a second. But... Just this whole idea of Egypt made a lot of false promises to the Jewish people because the Babylonians were also, and the Assyrians were also their enemies at the time. And so they said, hey, we're going to support you. You need to rebel. Stop paying taxes. Stop doing this. And so Israel leaned against them. And what ended up happening, the the reed broke, and they ended up injuring themselves. It says, when you seized you, the reed with the hand you cracked. And tore their shoulders with splinters. And when they leaned against you, you broke and made them stand straight on their loins without support. That's verse 7, 29-7. And so there's two instances, historical examples, in which Israel incited the Jews to rebel and actually made matters a lot, lot worse for the Jewish people. Um, in spite of the words of the prophets. They ignore the words of the prophets and, you know, listen to the... Uh, Secular authorities, the world powers, if you will. Well, I don't know. I've never seen that before. I don't know. That's not right for today at all. No. So, we got time for a little story time? Story time. Come on. First instance, Israel. The last monarch of the king of the ten tribes was Hoshea ben Elah. In his time, Assyria was the world's most powerful country. The Assyrian king... Shalmaneser the fourth threatened to invade the kingdom of Israel unless it paid him an annual tribute. In this way, the Jewish king too became subject to Assyria's whims. However, Egypt enticed the Jewish kings to stop paying, conspiring with King Hoshea. Egypt offered to help free the Jews from the Assyrian yoke. When the yearly tribute did not arrive, Shalmaneser investigated and was arranged to discover Hoshea's treacherous conspiracy with Egypt. He chained the Jewish king and threw him into the prison. Then he commanded his army to attack the king of Israel. After a siege that lasted three years, the Jewish kingdom finally fell, and the king of Asher exiled the ten tribes. We may thus say that while the destruction of the kingdom of the ten tribes was destined by Shem as retribution for his sins, the natural cause by which it was manifested itself was Egypt's false promise of support against Assyria. And then our second example came to the king of Yehuda. Zedekiah, the last king of Yehuda, was torn between allegiance to Babel and the power persuasions of Egypt to side with her. The prophet Yermaihu warned against the king, warned the king against putting trust in Egypt. But in the sixth year of his reign, Zedekiah yielded to the pressure of Egypt and stopped paying tribute to Babel. Immediately, Nebuchadnezzar sent a large army to subdue the kingdom of Yehuda 
His soldiers easily conquered the small cities of Yehuda and stood the enemy army, and the army stood before the gates of Yerushalayim. However, the inhabitants of the capital were prepared for the siege. For months, Yerushalayim held her own against the Babylonian army. Meanwhile, the Jews desperately continued hoping for aid from Egypt. Large sums of money were paid as bribes to Pharaoh Khafra. And then, one day, exciting news filled the air. Pharaoh Khafra was settling, setting out with his army to attack. The Babylonians retreated from Yerushalayim to face the new enemy. The Jews rejoiced, but Yemanyahu warned that their happiness was premature. Don't place unwarranted faith in the Egyptians. The Babylonians yet will yet return. The Jews brushed off Yemanyahu's words as typical pessimism, for, for they were confident that the downfall of Yerushalayim would never come to pass. In the end, Yemanyahu's prediction proved to be correct. The Egyptians retreated, and the Babylonians resumed their siege. In the 11th year of Sedekayu's reign, on the 17th of Tammuz, the enemy soldiers finally breached the wall, and on the 9th of Ab, they burned Behemekhtash. Egypt's deceitful incitements to rebel brought only sorrow and misfortune upon the Jews. Hashem was angry at B'nai Israel for having put their trust in Egypt rather than him. That was like watching two bad tra train wrecks. You know, like, how in the world? Like, and furthermore, like, Mitzrayim, like, what? Remember what they did to us? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, alrighty then. I know. Well, Todah Rabah for two beautiful uh, accounts for our story time on um, what actually happened with the fall of the northern and southern kingdoms. That was an immaculate job. And Egypt, because of all this, was punished because of this, this false hope was was instilled in Israel. What wait, so, what you know, did you just say? Egypt was punished? Yeah, Egypt was punished because of this action. Oh my word. Because they gave Israel false hope, which goes to show us, you know, oh. first of all, don't attack Israel. Don't persecute the Jewish nation or Jews individually or nationally. You're gonna get consequences from the Almighty. And the second thing is if you promise support, you better fulfill your word and not back out. So what, what countries are supporting Israel, they better keep supporting Israel because if they back out, then they're going to be in trouble from the Almighty. I thought that's what you were alluding to. I just wanted to double check. And now yeah, there's, there's that. <laughs> so maybe, you know, oh. the powers that be should listen to this half Torah or read Yechazel. Bezrat Hashem. King Yehiratzon. Wow. So Egypt actually punished Mida Kanega Mida because they prided themselves as arrogance, the fertility of their land. So Hashem laid that to waste. And then it goes on in verse 11. It says, no foot of man or beast will pass through it. It will be uninhabited for 40 years. Oh, and this was through Nebuchadnezzar because when he conquered Egypt in the, the 27th year of his reign, because the following 18 years of his rule, plus the 22 years of the reign of his son, evil Mordach, Egypt was deserted. So this is how these, these 40 years was preserved. But it really begs this question, where did this number come from? Why 40 years? Why? It comes back to what you mentioned earlier, that essentially the concept you brought down of Shem's words will always come true. They never come back null and void. And this was actually declared back in the Yosef story. <laughs> what? So originally, you know, we mentioned the years of famine, and Yosef interprets seven years. Yeah. But originally, Hashem declared 42 years. Oh. 
because there's six times, there's a six-fold repetition of the story of the seven cows and seven ears. Pharaoh had this dream a number of times. And so six times seven, you have 42. However, since Yosef predicted seven years of famine, Hashem fulfilled his words. Whoa. And so Yosef actually brought a, a, brought a softening to the suffering based on his his words that he was speaking towards Egypt. And then later, later, Yaakov arrived after only two years of famine, and the famine ceased. Hunger ceased in Egypt. And so, let's do, if you just do the math, you have 42 years that were declared. Yeah. Only two years, there was only two years of famine because Yaakov arrived. And so there's already two years of suffering. How many more years of suffering do we need if there's 42 initially? Man... There's 40, 40 years left over that's got to be fulfilled. There's a 40-year remainder. Hashem's word never comes back null and void. Wow. And so what happened to these these remaining 40 years of the decree? These were the 40 years to which uh, Yechazel, uh, Yechazkel was referring to when the land of Egypt would lie desolate, when Nebuchadnezzar attacked. Wow. And so it's like this question, okay, well, again, that's unfair. Remember, uh, Yechezchel was always attribute of divine justice. And so there's this plea, how is that fair? That would that Pharaoh lived a thousand years before this guy. But it's fair in the case that this guy had no excuse whatsoever to act the way he did. You know, he he and the other Pharaoh had so much in common. They both boasted very stupidly and just vainly, the Nile River is mine and I have made it myself. Wow. And so the old Pharaoh could actually claim that he never knew Hashem, like he pointed out. But this Pharaoh had the history of the plagues. That's in his history. And so he had no excuse, but Pharaoh, the Pharaoh and the Egyptians still wallowed in their ancient beliefs. And they refused to acknowledge Hashem. So really they deserve to be the, the to receive the balance of the ancestors' punishment. So he should have known if he would have just checked his history. He should have known. So, so that reminds me of the hail and the fire that came down in this week's Torah portion that was suspended in the air until it fell when Yehoshua entered into Eretz Israel to take out the kings. So there's a whole account on that, uh, that when Moshe stopped the hail from uh, falling to end that plague, it said that those hailstones were suspended in the air and to later be used upon conquest of the land led by Yehoshua. Oh, yes, man. That's so, that's so amazing. She was like, hey, Hashem's like, I did it. It can't be undone. It's got to go through. But I'll save a few guys when you need it in the future. Yeah, right. <laughs> that's amazing. Wow. But, you know, Egypt, um, there's a prophecy, even though they're, they're punished, they're never going to be powerful again. This is the next prophecy. The Persian Empire actually permitted the Egyptians to return to their homeland, but it became a lowly kingdom. Mm. And in that, you know, it never again rose rose to any power um, whatsoever. Right. And there's the interesting concept that Egypt was originally a lowly na nation to begin with. Until However, well, there's there's this idea, and that's 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 a, that's an excellent point. But also, it's an idea. Maybe it was through Yosef. But Hashem actually raised Egypt to become a powerful nation just prior to the Jews' enslavement. Oh. So for the sake of B'nai Israel's honor, for the sake of our honor, 
that the other nations should not deride them, saying that Jews were enslaved by inferior people. Oh, my word. And this is actually how, you know, Nebuchadnezzar rose to power. It was for the sake of the honor of Bnei Israel. And he rose to power just shortly before conquering Jerusalem. Because though the same thing should not be said again. So how, how wonderful is Shem, even, even when he's punishing us, he's considering, he's considering our honor. Even when we have neglected his honor for years, decades, he still considers our honor. You know, it shows us something to kind of think back about. With someone to raise our honor, we should, you know, hold our tongue and not derade theirs. Amen. You know, we should turn the other cheek, as Mashiach so wonderfully puts. Wow, that's an incredible elucidation for turning the other cheek. Wow, help us, Hashem, help us. Amen. That's talk about godliness right there. So, just another way you can imitate Hashem. But there's still there's still another question. You know, we we answered this slightly why it never became a mighty nation. That's because they they failed to keep their promises. They left them. In the, in, the, in the dark and put them in a worse situation than they would have before, just like they did in the Exodus story. Mm-hmm. But there's also this expression that says, Egypt will no longer remind of B'nai Israel's sin. And so there's this idea, Hashem's so concerned with the honor, like we mentioned before, mm-hmm. that he actually eliminates objects that remind of, uh, that remind of, of his sin. Whenever the uh, accusing angel stands up, the Almighty usually eliminates objects that remind of his sin. So we're talking about a, the, the sin of a sinner or the sin of Israel. And so particularly this in, in the case of the golden calf. And so it mentions this in, in Vayikra 22:27. It actually mentions for the sacrifices, it says a calf, a lamb, or a goat. It does not say that. It does not say a calf, a lamb, or a goat, but it actually says an ox instead of a calf. So the word calf is avoided so as not to bring mind the sin of the golden calf. And then we have this idea in, in Rosh Hashanah, that any animal's horn can be used except the cows. Again, to not remind of the sin of the golden calf. Uh, Yechezkel actually saw angels, but they had their feet covered. Mm. And so it's like, why? Because wow. angels' feet resemble those of calves. And so even their feet were covered. Why? For the sake of the honor of the Israel. And eliminating that, that, that image, like, forever. Mm. And then there's in the case of the Sota, where mm. the, the, case, the, the cup of an old Sota should not be used in the case of a new sota. So the people should not be reminded of the sin of the first sota. And then lastly, and this one's the most interesting, and uh, it says Hashem promises to eliminate, likewise, Hashem promises to eliminate Egypt from the fraternity of all superpowers because we put our trust in them. So this is what it means when it says Egypt will no longer remind of B'nai Israel's sin. But there's an interesting concept that's brought down. And it says this, Tiferet Zion explains that trusting in humans for salvation is actually a kind of idolatry, similar to the sin of the golden calf, since the sinner replaces a shim with another symbol or person to believe in. And so the belief of a human to bring salvation, the belief of a human to be the Mashiach, to bring about redemption, the belief that he will be a human is a form of idolatry. And so this is why Mashiach must be divine. He must be from Hashem and not born of, of man, so to say. Um, as your personal friend and <laughs> confidant, you still haven't gotten any help, and I think you, I still think you need to get some. 
Getting it. I just wanted to tell you. <laughs> Sorry, I, I had to do it in public. <laughs> I can see. I appreciate your concern for my well-being. <laughs> oh my word! Okay, can I just tell you what I saw? It was like, as I'm just listening to everything, all of a sudden there was like this big flare that just split off into these mini rockets and just lit up the whole entire scene. Like, it's amazing. You talk about Hashem putting away our sins, like the, the reminders. Oh, my word. Just down the list. That, that uh, man, no words. Yeah. Okay. So, take a breather. We got to move on. <laughs> Keep pushing through. Get it. So, then we have this other phrase. And 2018, coming to the, the close of the half Torah, mentions again, Son of Man, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel, gave his army a difficult task to besiege Sore, Tyre. And it mentions the strain of each soldier, how they turned bald from carrying stones to build a fortification and such. And every soldier's shoulder was blistered from stones that rubbed against it. Yet he and his army gained nothing from Sore. After all the work he invested in it, the ocean inundated the city and swept away all the all the the loot that the army had collected and as it goes on to say therefore so says Hashem Elohim behold I will give to Nebuchadnezzar king of Babel the land of Egypt he will carry away its multitudes as captives he will take its its loot and plunder its spoil they will be the reward for his army and so it's like why is he rewarded by all this well according to uh, sources such as like Dot Sofrim it mentions that Nebuchadnezzar, this idea, he actually heard the prophecy of doom regarding Sor. So to a certain extent, he actually intended to, will, to fulfill Hashem's will. And so um, there's this idea, you know, that, that kings of nations are not like necessarily other people. So they have uh, more of a connection to, to hearing these, like the rulings and sayings of Hashem, even though they're not like prophets. Because they're in such a position, they can actually being tuned to such things like that. That's but incredible. there's another idea that a person receives reward for being instrumental in the execution of Hashem's decree. <laughs> and so why this had to happen, you know, king, the, the king of Sor was King Churim, or Hiram. Mm-hmm. And he also, like the Egyptian king, claimed to be divine. He also thought he was very fly. What? <laughs> he also thought he was very fly, because he, he could fly. Okay. You said what? Because he could fly. Don't tell me you don't know the backdrop yeah, on yeah. Hiram, man. Come no, on. Something new remind me. That's the... Okay, so this guy, he basically built himself like a palace in the air and like did all this stuff. I'm going to go ahead and just drop. This is um, Dr. Sakal elucidating on King Hiram. So let me see here. Okay. So the prince Zor is none other than Hiram, the king of Tyre, or Tyre, who was a friend of Melech David and collaborated with Melech Shlomo in the building of the Beit HaMikdash. So he really thought he was fly. And who is said to have lived for 1,000 years. Okay, that's just not a long time, but that's cool. Okay, and we learn from verse 15 of chapter 28. That initially the phrase that says you were perfect in your ways from the day that you were created until iniquity was found in you. 
that to have been a friend of the righteous Melech David and to have played a key role in the building of Melech Shlomo's temple, Hiram must indeed have been a most exceptional Hasid of the nations of the world. So you talk about how the, the Melachim of other nations, they have such a stature that they can be in tune with some of the prophecies of Hashem. So here we go. And it says, indeed, our sages said that Hiram was one of 13 who did not taste death, elucidate all that. And then uh, it says that Hiram was removed from Eden and is expressed in a lengthy midrash and Yalkut Shimoni giving a detailed description of an enormous phantomagorical, I don't know how to say that word, but anyway, some kind of skyscraper structure of seven firmaments built out of steel, he built out of steel, glass and other materials, plating it with gold and studying it with precious stones in order to provide a fitting throne for himself. It keeps going on more, but he had all these different um, elements to his kingdom that he made, and lots of it was made in the air. And there was a prophet that had that Hashem had to literally airdrop to him to let him know that Hashem was going to take him down. Man. Anyway, that's that's King Flyman. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking. I'm looking at this this idea of his, his throne. Is pretty, pretty crazy. <laughs> what you see? <laughs> it says it was located in mid-ocean and was crowned with seven heavens. The first one was a glass heaven, five hundred almost long and five hundred almost wide, which contained an uh, imitation sun, moon, and stars. Oh. The second one was an iron heaven of even larger proportions. Each heaven was divided from the next one by a jet of water. The third heaven, which was even larger than the second one, was also made of iron and filled with thousands of rocks that crashed into each other, producing a thunderous din. The fourth heaven was made of lead, the fifth of copper, and the sixth of silver. The seventh and largest heaven was made of gold and inlaid with huge sparkling diamonds and pearls that shimmered like flashes of lightning. On top of all these was erected the throne of Hiram. Hiram said, I am immortal, I shall live forever. And the Ramani's response to his claim was, I created man's body with an orifice for excretion, and I punished Adam with mortality after his sin, with you in mind. For I knew that you would one day rebel against me, and shamelessly boast that you were divine. So, wow. they go say what his fate was, and this kind of links into our idea of like, you have Nebuchadnezzar punishing this guy. Right. And how was, what was his fate? It, it says he had an excruciating and horrible death because every day Nebuchadnezzar would cut a layer of two finger breadths from his flesh, dip it in vinegar, and eat it. I thought, you know, you know, it's PG, PG-20. Yeah, it just upped <laughs> a little bit, but uh, that was that was his punishment for elevating himself. Yep, that's what he gets. It's like, nope, I'll show you. <laughs> I mean, it just goes to show, even though Nebuchadnezzar rewarded, and you might think of him as maybe like a, a good guy, because in the book of Daniel, he later acknowledges Hashem. Right. You know, he was he was not he was not a good person at all. And, you know, <laughs> you was, mentioned that he made his own sun and moon. Mm -hmm. they're, they're trying to make an imitation moon over in China right now. Really? Yeah. E either China or Japan. So, like, that whole concept is definitely coming to pass. That's insane. I thought it was 
possibly something cool, but now I know it's definitely something not cool and a big don't get you some. And it follows along the pattern of a guy who really thought he was divine and who died a very, very cruel death um, that fit that punishment. So, man. Anyway, yeah. You were saying. <laughs> well, hopefully they're using it for, you know, scientific purposes and maybe like a museum or something like that, not to act like they can actually create a moon and planets and whatnot. I mean, that's right to show. Well, we get into uh, last last verse of the half Torah. Say what? Uh, the ride's over already? Well, if you want, there's this like a, uh, a lengthy, but not overly lengthy, <laughs> story time if you're in for it. But How do you feel about it? Do you want to do your last point and go to that, or do you want to... Do you want to do that and then go to your last one? Either way. I'd go either way. But it's about Purim. So. Okay, let's yeah. do it after then. Okay, for sure. All right, cool. The focus of the half Torah, and this is based on, we have uh, 2921. On that day when I will resettle the Egyptians in their land after 40 years of exile, I will let the strength of Israel grow. How? I will replace the Babylonian Empire with Persia. Koresh, king of Persia, will permit the resettling of the Jews in Eretz Israel and the rebuilding of the Behan Mikdash. I will give you, Yechazel, uh, the right to open your mouth in the midst of Bnei Israel to rebuke them, for they will see your prophecy come true. Then they shall know that I am a Shem who fulfills his word. Mm. So we come down to the focus of the half Torah is... And they will know that I am Hashem. The whole purpose to the punishments whatsoever. Amen. That's the whole focus of the half Torah. And so there's just a little comment about the political events. They are determined by they're determined by the Almighty, and the most prestigious heads of states are just mere puppets at, their, at his hands. Mm. And so just this, this this concept of you know if you really really want to make a difference, you know you could also see this in um, and Mordecai's actions, if you really, really want to make a difference, then, you know, stay out of the, the political talk, waste the time, waste the money and, and all that. It's really about being in prayer and bringing in Torah study, because these are the things that change Hashem's mind. When he sees our character changing, when he sees us dominating to him, this is how we make moves in the heavenly realm. And by, by prayer, yes, his and personal prayer is amazing, but by prayer, I mean, open us the door and praying the Shemoni Ezra, praying the words of these Salakim who were just like so close to a Shem, made a layout that is like unlocking the codes of blessing in your life and for for the world. I mean, and, and if you can get a minion with that, then that's kind of like having a Death Star without that exhaust port that makes it blow up so easy <laughs> and just blowing up. All, all these objects, these spiritual objects, and the Yetzaharas that are in our way. <laughs> see, it's really Star Wars. Yeah, it's kind of that's that's how I envision a minion, man. That's how I see it. It's like it's like you have a minion praying from the words of of Chazal and all these great righteous men who, or in some case, prophets themselves. Like you imagine that it's kind of like you just built a Death Star and you're gonna make huge moves in the spiritual and physical realms. Wow. With a minion. <laughs> nice. What was that hashtag again? Hashtag pray from a Sador with a minion. 
<laughs> it's literally, it's like you can work on it, but <laughs> no, there's nothing that needs to be worked on. That right there, that I mean, I would just want to let everybody know, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Like, I dig it with two shovels and even a backhoe. Like, that is real right now. So, man. All right. So, we got two. We got two men in. We just need eight more knots. <laughs> <laughs> right. Where y'all at? Where y'all at? All right. So, we up for a half, uh, um, uh, one of our longer, longer story times that actually encompasses all these ideas. It's also going to get us a little pumped up for Purim. All right. Well, popcorn in hand, and we all say story time. Let it go. A prisoner sentenced. Oh, sleep <laughs> On the fateful night of Pesach, after Haman had received permission from Achshafarosh, never say that name, to annihilate. It says what? Achshverosh. Achshverosh. There it is, Yashikoak. To annihilate the Jewish people and had been invited with him to the Queen Esther's banquet. The main characters of the story were too busy to retire, retire for the night. Queen Esther was awake preparing the banquet for a royal guest. Mordecai was up entreating the Almighty to annul his decree, and Haman was preparing gallows to hang Mordecai. Only King Achashverosh slept, though by no means peacefully, for in his dreams he saw Haman threatening him with a sword. Hashem said to his angel, How can I let this wicked king sleep at a time of such distress for the Jews? Go, wake him up. The angel flew down and bumped Achashverosh to the floor 365 times. The king slept no longer. Neither did the king of the universe sleep. Indeed, it is written about Hashem that he never sleeps nor slumbers. However, when B'nai Israel sin, he acts as though he is indifferent to their fate. Now, however, he accepted B'nai Israel's teshuva and no longer slept. Lying awake in his bed, Achashverosh was haunt, haunted by morbid thoughts. Why was Esther invited Haman to the banquet too, he wondered. Have the two perhaps conspired to assassinate me? No, this cannot be, for one of my most faithful servants would surely have informed me about such a plot. But soon the king replaced this comforting thought with a new, frightening one. It is possible that no one has... Is it possible that no one has troubled himself to reveal an evil scheme to me because I have neglected to reward those who saved me in past times? In order to look into the matter, the king summoned his servant to bring his diary before him and read aloud from it. The instant describing how Mordecai had once saved the king's life had been erased by the king's scribe, Shimshai, who was one of Haman's sons. But the angel Gabriel had rewritten it. Now the diary miraculously opened to that page, but when the king's servant wanted to skip it, the words appeared to read themselves. What reward was given to Mordecai for his good deed, inquired the king. The servant replied, trust truthfully, not because they liked Mordecai, but rather because they hated Haman, had had a hand in the plot. At that moment, footsteps were heard in the outer courtyard. Who is in the courtyard, asked the king. It is Haman, replied the servants. Let him enter, ordered the king. In fact, Haman had come to ask permission to hang Mordecai in the gallows that he had prepared for himself. But before he had time to voice his request, the king inquired of him, what would be a fitting treatment for a man who the king wishes to honor? Haman had no doubt at all that the king was referring to himself, since it was his fervent wish to take the king's palace. He suggested 
the royal purple robe which the king wore on the day of his coronation, the horse on which he rode then, and the crown he wore on the occasion should be brought. When Ahasuerus heard the word crown, he paled. This is what I dreamt, he thought. Haman wants my crown. Notice the king's agitation. Haman quickly added, let the robe and the horse be given to the man whom the king wishes to honor. He made no more mention of the crown. Let him be dressed in the royal garments and ride through the streets of Shushan, while a crier announces, thus shall be done to the man whom the king wishes to honor. Fine, said Ahasuerus. Get the garment and horse and do so to Mordecai. Who is Mordecai? inquired Haman, dumbfounded. The Jew. There are many Jews by name Mordecai, the one who sits at the king's gate. Haman was aghast. That one, he snorted. He will be just as happy if you present him with a town or with a toil from a river crossing. Don't make me a laughingstock by telling me to honor my archenemy. Do as you're told, snapped Ahasuerus. Omit none of the things you have mentioned. Haman went to the king's treasury and was handed the robe and horse, which he took to Beit Hamikdash, a midrash, where Mordecai was teaching his students. When Haman approached, Mordecai began to tremble. I see the wicked man drawing close. He must be coming to execute me, he told his students. Quickly, flee. Mordecai rose, wrapping himself in his talit, and he began to pray. What were you studying? Haman asked Mordecai. We discussed the laws of the Omer offering, replied Mordecai. A handful of flour used to be burned used to be burned in a holy temple every year on this day. Haman commented, Your handful of flour has outweighed the ten thousand kikiar of gold I have offered the king for your destruction. The king has ordered me to dress you in the royal robe he wore on the day that he was crowned to lead you through the city on his horse. After his initial surprise, Mordecai told Haman, I have been fasting and praying. I am unwashed and my hair is neglected. It would be a disgrace for the king to, to wear the royal garments in this condition. Let me first take a bath and haircut. However, all bath houses and barber shops had been closed to, by Esther's royal decree. Perhaps she'd foreseen the situation, or else she wished to this day to be a public holiday. So Haman himself was compelled to watch Mordecai fetch scissors from his home and cut his hair. He accomplished all this with much sign and moaning. What's the matter? asked Mordecai. Imagine, groaned Haman. An important person is such as I, reduced to becoming a bath attendant of barber. You're quite an esper at it, remarked Mordecai. After all, you used to be a barber in the town of Khartoum, where Haman had practiced his trade for 22 years. When Mordecai wanted to mount the horse, he said, I cannot do it. I am too weak from fasting. So Haman had crouched and allowed Mordecai to step on him in order to reach the horse. Finally, Haman had accomplished his humiliating task and morefully returned home to complain to his wife and friends. But while he was still speaking, the royal messengers arrived to rush him to Queen Esther's banquet. At this banquet, Esther revealed to the king Ahasuerus that she was a Jew, a descendant of King Shaul's royal house. From then on, Ahasuerus spoke to her directly, whereas previously he addressed her only through an interpreter. Esther disclosed to the king the danger which she and her people were in. Who is it that dare to do this to you? The king asked her. It is a spiteful, evil man, said Esther. And she began moving her finger ever so slightly towards Ahasuerus, the king, for her heart was filled with bitterness against the evil king who had cold-bloodedly given permission for Haman to exterminate an entire people. However, the angel Gabriel pushed her finger towards Haman. It is the evil Haman, said Queen Esther. Furious, the king stepped out of the palace in the garden to vent his anger, but when he saw that there made him even angrier. 
for Haman's sons were cutting down his trees, and when he asked them who had given them permission, they replied, Our father. Meanwhile, the angel Gabriel pushed Haman onto the couch, onto which Queen Esther was reposing. Haman was entreating the queen to spare his life, but the king, upon re-entering, was outraged and exclaimed, Has he come to assault my queen in my own home? A servant of Achsharosh, Carvonah, had been one of Haman's friends who had advised him to wreck gallows for Mordecai. But when he realized that Haman had fallen into disgrace, he quickly switched positions. Like a rat leaving the sinking, the sinking ship, he told Achsharosh, Haman was in league with Bigsan and Suresh, who plotted to murder you. The proof is that as soon as Mordecai revealed the plot to you, he displayed hatred towards Mordecai. Haman was prepared. Haman has prepared a gallows for Mordecai, 50 almost high. Hang him on it, or the king succeedingly. At that, the king's fury abated. This is why, why is there a double little cough in the word abated? It hints that not only the earthly king's anger was abated, but also the heavenly kings, for the Rasha Hamid would finally be eliminated. The end. <laughs> that's, that's the sound of cheering and applause. So we are <laughs> That's hilarious. We are we are literally about to go into a holiday where all these ideas we're we're about to be involved. We're about to um like literally re- rehearse the story where all these ideas are in place where Shim's word does not come back null and void. Where literally it's reminding us to trust in Shim, even though he's he's not so evident in the Perm story. You know, we rely on him and not these other kings. Right. You know, you have you have King Ashras in the Torah story. You have Pharaoh of this half Torah, and all their arrogance that doesn't really shape history. They're all tools in Hashem's hand that he used for his own will. And you know, Nebuchadnezzar only imagined is with his might he could capture and destroy nations at will. But he's he's just like the others. He's just Hashem's agent. He's just a tool. And so instead of worrying about all these political agendas like Haman did, you know, and all all his plots to gain control. We should instead apply ourselves to this tefillah, the prayer, and really self-improvement. Because these are the only factors that allows Hashem, that Hashem really allows to influence the course of history itself. Beautifully, beautifully elucidated. And all I would like to add to that is, as you were sharing such an epic story time, that there was definitely a need for an applause for. Um <laughs> You see that there is heavenly assistance all throughout the background of everything that is going on. And furthermore, when we look at Messiah Yeshua being Messiah ben Yosef, we see that the whole thing about Messiah ben Yosef is concealment. And the beautiful thing that's also brought out in Messiah Yeshua, even though he's Messiah ben Yosef, the other part is he's Messiah ben David which is revealing. And so that which is concealed is also revealed, and that which is revealed is also concealed. And it's like interesting dichotomy of like revealing and concealing that's going back and forth. And as you bring out how we are supposed to be involved in tefillah and correcting our midot, which is an aspect of Musar, and if we're studying Torah, I mean, 
the beautiful uh, picture that we got to see of Mordecai with his Talmudim sitting and studying the Omer. And then when his executioner shows up, he wraps himself in his tallit and starts davening. You know, like, so that's such an incredible thing for us to definitely use and, and to engage and be very, very active in. Everything is unfolding, you know, because we, we're in the process of the Geula happening in our time and in our days. And Bezrat Hashem may it be completed and be we be gathered in and the Beit HaMikdash rebuilt with the return of Messiah Yeshua. And, you know, but in the meantime, that's what we're to be doing. We're to engage in our daily task that Hashem has granted us to do, namely gathering in the divine sparks and, and studying Torah and praying. Like literally, uh, like you said, open a Siddur and pray with a minion. Like that right there will solve all your, well, it won't solve all your problems, but it sure will make for a joyous occasions. So anyway, just wanted to Throw that out there. Such an incredible Haftarah podcast this week. So, Baruch Hashem. All right. Well, we have officially hit our 90-minute mark. So, um, if you have any last things you'd like to say before we index our time, let it fly. Maybe just maybe just quote Haman, because out, out of his mouth came came a lot of wisdom. He said, you know, you're, you're Omer. Your little the little wheat and flour that you have is greater than my you know, KCR of ten thousand. Mm. Uh, it's just like we 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 scheme, we try to plot, we try to make all these, for lack of better terms, these political moves. You know, just like Israel did with Egypt, and that only brought us suffering. Like like Haman said, what's worth more than all this gold, all this power, all this uh, influence in the earthly realms? is these mitzvos that we do because like we, we we said it's that that affects affects the spiritual realm it's that that affects hashem um, governing the course of history amen well what do we know what do we know bless you havivi toda for your insights and elucidation barukata adonai eloheinu melakaolam zur kol haolamim Zadik bekol hadorot, ha'el ha'neeman, ha'omer veose hamdaber, um kayem shekol devrav emet vazerek, neeman atahu Adonai Eloheinu vene emanim, devareka vedavar echad, midvareka akor lo yashuv recham, ki el melek neeman verakaman ata. Baruch Ata Adonai, Ha'el Ha'ne'eman Bekol Devarav, Biskut Mashiach Kishua. Amen. Amen. Well, everyone, Toda Rabah for joining us. This is Shomer Mene Chassiz Baz signing out and saying Shalom Shavuotov.